the Indigenous Connection Show. My name is Randy Lynn and I'm the host for the Indigenous Connections radio show. Join me as we discuss various topics in regards to First Nations culture, arts, ideologies, and spirituality from both a historical and contemporary point of view. Randy Lynn Hello everyone, welcome to the Indigenous Connections Radio Show. I'm your host, Brandy Lynn Nanmuhu Candeline. A little bit about myself, I'm the eldest of three children. Uh, my family originates from the Big Stone Cree Nation in Treaty 8 territory. However, I grew up in Lacklebish, Alberta. I ventured off to Edmonton and then Saskatoon to obtain my Aboriginal Mental Health Diploma and then my Indigenous Social Work Degree. So knowing a little bit about my educational background, I think it's very obvious that my culture as a Cree Nihiao indigenous woman um, plays a huge factor in my life. I consider myself very fortunate given the opportunity I was that I was able to grow up with and around my culture. And that has played a huge role in how I identify and how I view the world around me. Um, So with that, every radio show that we do, we discuss various topics in regards to First Nations cultures, teachings, histories, ideologies, and spirituality, also art from both a historical and contemporary point of view. And I always like to mention why I mention contemporary because There has been a misunderstanding, if you will, a stereotype that as First Nations Nations and Indigenous people, we are relics of the past, that we're stuck in the past. Uh, Reality is our culture is evolving. It is adapting to the times. And we can see this evident in our artwork. Um, Yes, we strongly base our teachings, our understandings in the teachings of the past of our elders and our ancestors but we also evolve with the times and we make do with the resources that have been available to us during such time. So moving on, um, it's my hopes that by having this show and having these conversations with you guys that we can create an honest and truthful dialogue and follow it with explanations um, to start breaking down stereotypes and misunderstandings of Indigenous people right here in Canada um, and kind of working towards what I like to refer to as a metaphorical bridge between the Indigenous and non-Indigenous communities because it's very apparent that the educational system has really kind of picked and choose what areas of Indigenous First Nations culture they want to cover and um, the reality of the situations many indigenous people face. So I'm just hoping to kind of give you guys a little window into what the heck's going on with indigenous people so that we can start to understand each other more and we can start to emphasize with each other more and we can work together in not only healing ourselves and healing our communities, but also working together in the spirit of reconciliation. So today we are continuing on with our Okamawa Square series. Don't even ask me what episode we're on. <laughs> uh, so stay tuned for that. The Indigenous Connection Show. 
Hey everyone, welcome to the Indigenous Connections Radio Show. I'm your host, Randy Lynn, and we are continuing on with our Okamawa Square series. But something I've been doing these past few episodes that I think is really important is um, starting off with current events that affect Indigenous people, Indigenous issues here in Canada. Um, and this past little while, something has very unsettling has been discovered. And it all began in Kamloops, BC, in the Shuswap territories, um, where at the grounds of where the residential school was in that area, um, they managed to discover 215 bodies of children discovered in a mass grave, the youngest of these children aging three years old. Um, I starting this episode in such tragedy but this is the reality and we cannot tiptoe around it that this is what indigenous people have been saying for a very long time that these schools literally did not care for these children and now we have the evidence to show that 215 children going back to as young as three was dumped in a mass grave um it's a big pill to swallow, and following these events of the dis- discovery, there has n- been nothing short but an uproar across Canada. Um, for survivors and intergenerational survivors, this news has been very triggering. Uh, personally, I had to take some self-care time because I, I just didn't know how to feel about this news. Um, I guess... It's something that we always knew was there, but when you have the evidence and it's really different because now we can't pretend it's not there. It's there, it's right in our faces and there's no way of pretending this didn't happen to children, mind you, babies. Um, In our previous discussions, we have talked intensively about residential schools and how the official death of children's was listed at 3,021 here in Canada. Uh, oh, sorry, 3,201. Um, but we talked about how there is many of us that believe this number is much higher, um, as many deaths had gone undocumented in the schools. Um, reports weren't made and really no, no dams were given, I guess. Uh, And we have stories from survivors that many of their classmates had just disappeared with no care for their remains. Um, So like I said, this discovery just confirmed something many of us already knew. And that we knew there were more children out there. And I'm just, I don't know if grateful is the right word to use at the moment, but I guess I'm grateful in the sense that time and energy is being put into actually digging deep into what happened at these schools and the reality that many of our children are still buried underneath these schools. Um, So we've seen a reaction not only from the Indigenous community, but also the non-Indigenous community as reaction to this news which honestly I think is a good thing um, 
trying to look at it from an optimistic point of view because this isn't the first mass grave that has been found in Canada's history in regards to residential school. But this is the first time I've seen such an uproar and such an outcry by all of Canada. So right there, it shows me that change is happening, that empathy is happening, that education of the reality of these schools is out there. Um, as we continue on this journey of truth and reconciliation, uh, I believe people are starting to really emphasize with the reality that Indigenous people uh, face during the residential school era of having their children legally kidnapped and legally apprehended from them um, and forced into these schools where they were uh, exposed to cruel and unusual punishment. And as this discovery has shown that many had met their death at these schools. And I think people are actually starting to take the time and look at their own children and try to wrap their heads around how people could be so cruel and evil to shove children in a mass grave like that and just kind of let it be for so long. Uh, with this discovery, many communities have rose to the occasion and we've seen a kind of pop-up of events to honor the memory of these children. Uh, I've seen many ceremonies being hosted and people just doing what they can to honor this discovery of these babies in this ground. So a poem was created, many poems were created. Um, I think we're all just trying to find a way to wrap our heads around this news. So one of the poems we created in response to the discovery, I would like to share with you right now. And this poem has been written by Abigail Echo Hawk. And it goes, when they buried the children, what they didn't know, they were lovingly embraced by the land held and cradled in a mother's heart. The trees wept for them. With the wind, they sang morning songs their mothers didn't know to sing. Bending branches to touch the earth around them, the Creator cried for them, the tears falling like rain. Mother Earth held them until they could be found. Now our voices sing the morning songs with the trees. The wind lights sacred fire, and sure they are never forgotten as we sing justice. With such a horrid, horrid discovery happening, it's I'm grateful for our culture and our teachings. And that poem really emphasized how as indigenous people, as holistic people, we know this earth is alive, that spirits are all around us. And I'm not trying to get preachy or anything towards you, but this poem really made me feel some type of way where I was really sad for these children and the pain and the fear that they must have felt during their last moments on this earth physically before being dumped into a hole. And reading that poem and remembering that these children were taken care of, um, not on this earth, but in the next life where Mother Earth stepped up to take care of them till they could be found and honored in the proper way. So it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, I think any compassionate, empathetic human being 
kind of felt some type of way with that news. So following this discovery in May of 2021 at the Kamlupa Residential School in the Shushwap Territory, um, many have called to action uh, that people start investigating the former grounds of all residential schools that were operated that were in operation here in Canada during the residential school era that operated well over a century. So to date, as I am doing this recording from the first discovery of in May 2021 of 215 babies found in BC, that number has exploded to 572. 215 found at the Kamloops Residential School in British Columbia, 35 bodies found at the Muskowagon, Saskatchewan Residential School, 38 found at Regina, Saskatchewan Residential School, 104 found at Brandon, Manitoba Residential School, and then reaching into the United States where they also had residential schools in operation. They didn't have as many, but they did have some in car... Carzile, I'm probably saying that wrong, Carzile, uh, Pennsylvania, 180 babies were discovered. So as the days go on, as the weeks go on, as the months go on, and people are really looking into this issue and taking it seriously, I believe this number is going to continue to rise. And the reality is that so out of those four schools, one and the fifth one being in the United States, we think that this is only four out of 130 schools that were oper- in operation in Canada. So yes, that number is going to rise. Uh, many government leaders have vowed to do in-depth investigations to identify the remains of the babies discovered. However, now they are in Um, facing the issue that there's no records of these children for them to look into. Uh, Many churches destroyed their records or just didn't care to keep them. Uh, The churches that were operating these schools, I should kind of make myself clear there. And this isn't surprising. Um, This is something that the Indigenous community has long stated that the records are just not there, but now the rest of the world, I guess, is catching up to what we've been saying for a long time. And you think if an individual has the capacity to just dump a baby in a hole and call it a day, obviously there was not much care or concern for the life of that child to even care about keeping records of these children or having evidence that they are responsible for the harm on this child. Um, there's so much, so much else I could say, as, but this is a developing story, and I kind of want to stop it there because this topic does deserve its own episode, and I, I think we will come back to this as more um, kind of comes to the surface on this issue. With it being such a grueling discovery, um, Many people have kind of reached out to residential school survivors 
Um, we have to remember that these people are only human, that this news is very triggering and very upsetting and rehatching a lot of trauma for these people. So we need to give them the space and the time and the patience to process this information. Me being an intergenerational survivor, I needed to step away from everyone and just figure out how I felt about this and how I'm going to move forward with this. And when the survivors are ready, please just allow them the safe space to listen. You don't need to talk. You don't need to interrupt. You don't need to judge. You don't need to correct them. You just, they just need someone to listen to. Um, Another movement that's been suggested is that in honor of all the babies that are being discovered, in honor of all the babies that didn't make it home, in honor of all the babies that did survive the schools but grew up with so much pain and trauma that they're asking um, this Canada Day to wear orange instead of red as orange is been adopted as the color in honor of residential school survivors. Um, so I just want to end this segment with a little quote that's been kind of going viral since the discovery. And it's just a little voice whispered, they found us. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections radio show. I know our last segment was a bit heavy, um, but... Like I said, we can't tiptoe around this. This is part of the truth of the reality. And we cannot pretend that this didn't happen because no healing will come of it. Um, but continuing on with our Okamao Square series, we spent quite a lot of time talking about the very misfortunate epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, two-spirit, trans, queer people, etc. Um and we kind of drifted on to talking about, yes, we talked about our negative and what's how our women are highly targeted, but let's talk about our change makers and our matriarchs reclaiming their proper place in our society as Indigenous people, as we do identify as an Indigenous society. So we see many, many women throughout the past century or so rising to the occasion and reclaiming that power and reclaiming that leadership role. So I wanted to take a few episodes to highlight some of these amazing women that have been breaking those black glass ceilings for not only Indigenous people, but for women of all backgrounds, of all ages, of all identities. Um, so I want to talk about Raven Sinclair. And I was first introduced to Raven's work back when I was studying uh, Aboriginal mental health at Grant McEwen. And all I can say was I was completely floored. I was just, could not get enough of her work. Um, the work she has done and the teaching she has provided to students such as myself, working with Indigenous survivors has kind of reframed how we approach survivors, how we are capable of taking the hardships that they have faced and helping them to find the strengths in that hardship and to show them that they are so much stronger than they perceive themselves to be given the circumstances that they had. Um, 
and not to brag, but she kind of did commission me to be like 20 pairs of earrings. And she actually gifted these earrings to some of her international colleagues, which was pretty cool. It's kind of a big deal for me back then because I was like, oh man, my beadwork's going international. <laughs> oh, to be young again. Okay, anywho, Raven Sinclair, also known as Otisque Wapiscueo, as her traditional name, is Cree Assiniboine Soto and a member of the Gordon First Nations of Treaty 4 area in southern Saskatchewan. Um, she identifies as a two-spirit woman and I actually got to work with her ex-wife on many occasions. Uh, she helps run the dance studio in Saskatoon and she does really good work in incorporating uh, dance styles of all cultures into mainstream dancing programs. So yeah, <laughs> side note. <laughs> um, so Raven is part of the Faculty of Social Work at the University of of Saskatchewan. Uh, she is a survivor and expert on the 60s scoop, the practice of taking Indigenous children from their families and placing them in foster care or adopting them out to white families. We talked a bit about the 60s scoop in our residential school episodes where um, the 60s scoops kind of followed the residential school where um, Child Family Services was apprehending Indigenous children by the handful and then just adopting them out to anyone and everyone of white descent. And many children lost their identity because of this. So it was kind of step two of the residential school. Uh, she is a professor, filmmaker, author, and facilitator. Sinclair is also a founding editorial member of Indigenous Voices in Social Work out of the U Hawaii. Oop and a regional editor for Alternative, an international journal of Indigenous people. Sinclair began studies as the undergrad, sorry, Sinclair began studies at the undergraduate level at the University of Toronto in 1981. She went on to study at First Nations University in the Bachelor of Indian Social Work program. That's where I went <laughs> at the time. It was a, the only post-secondary program taking an Indigenous approach, and that's exactly why I went there for school. Anywho, she holds a Master of Social Work from the University of Toronto and a PhD from the University of Calgary. Oh, I should be calling her Dr. Sinclair. Okay, Dr. Sinclair is a full professor at the Faculty of Social Work in the, at the U of R, U of Regina, she has published on the 60s scoop with her work being cited in publications such as the Canadian Encyclopedia and has appeared on programs such as CBC The National. Sinclair produced the film A Truth To Be Told, the 60s scoop in Splatsin Community, sorry, I probably said that wrong, in 2016. The film examines the idea of child saving and the impacts on Indigenous people and the child welfare system in Canada with a focus on the history of the Splatson band, Shushwap, experienced a child welfare removal in the 1960s and 70s. So the Shushwap are located in Kamloops, BC area. Uh, Raven Sinclair is an executive producer on the film Trouble in the Garden, 2018, directed by Roz Oding, and starring Cara G, John Cor, Fiona Reed, and Frankie Moore. The film premiered in 2018 at the Sudbury Film Festival and is an official selection of the Whistler Film Festival, the Los Angeles Film Festival, the 
Wingusk Indigenous Film Festival and the Maryland Film Festival. <laughs> Bailed out and taken in by a brother she hasn't seen in years, an Indigenous protester and her adoptive family reckon with betrayal of love, land, and blood. The film is released on iTunes July 30th, 2019, so that's out there if you'd like to check it out. Uh, some of her publications include Case Critical, Social Services, and Social Justice in Canada, Aboriginal Youth Gangs in Canada, Destructing an Epidemic, Oh, that would be a good topic to talk about. Okay, I'm getting sidetracked. Wichichuan, Aboriginal Social Worker in Canada. That's one of the books I read. Identity, Lost and Found Lessons from the 60s Scoop. Aboriginal Mentoring in Saskatoon, A Cultural Perspective. Mio Machuin, A Report on Indigenous Health in Saskatchewan. Aboriginal Social Work Education in Canada, Decolonizing Pedigree for the seventh generation, indigenous research and social work, the challenges of operationalizing worldview, all my relations, native transcripts, adoption, a critical case study of cultural identity, Canadian Child Research Portal. Ooh, man. So this lady definitely has an amazing track record behind her of really making ways in the indigenous social work community and helping people like myself approach the the realities that as indigenous people we have to face and how do we heal ourselves in a colonial system in a capitalist world in a in a society that is so foreign to our indigenous ideologies and identities and ways of seeing, right? So Raven does really great work and I'm really grateful for all the stuff that she's done because it's helped me on my own personal journey of becoming a social worker. So we'll take a quick break and we'll continue on with indigenous leaders, change makers. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections radio show. We are continuing on with our Okamawa Squayosis, uh, loosely translated into English, boss ladies. Uh, so we spent quite a lot of time talking about all the unfortunate trauma incidents, attacks that are happening towards our Indigenous women. And we're kind of changing the pace and working ourselves up and hyping ourselves up to and we are profiling indigenous matriarchs. Um, continuing on talking about those powerhouse women that are in there trying to change the system for the better. First, we talked about Raven Sinclair. Now we're moving towards Cindy Blackstock, a personal hero for many indigenous people. Um, she has been deemed a relentless champion for indigenous children's rights by McLean Magazine. Uh, we cannot forget to include Miss Cindy Blackstock in our Matriarch Rising episode. Adding on to that, Miss Blackstock actually is number 27 on McLean's power list of 2021 that profiles 50 of 50 influential Canadians this year. Um, so I'm going to read the article from McLean's for you. She serves. Okay, let's start again. <laughs> Cindy Blackstock. She serves as an 
as executive director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society, whose litigation against Canada has secured hundreds of thousands of services for First Nations youth. Uh, her biggest accomplishment was seeing how a diversity of children flooded so many courtrooms during their Indigenous peers' long legal fight and seeing even more kids standing outside on Parliament Hill at key moments in the ongoing saga, their signs full of glitter saying First Nations children matter. And I think, especially right now, that is very true. Uh, if we can raise a generation of non-Indigenous kids who don't normalize the discrimination and have the tools to peacefully and respectfully advocate for the end of this kind of apprehend system, then we'll be in a position where First Nations children never have to recover from their childhoods again. Oh man, isn't that the goal? Cindy Blackstock said, and non-Indigenous children will never have to say they're sorry. Um, isn't that what we all want? We just want better for our children. We just don't want them to carry the pain we had to carry or the guilt we've had to carry because of our systematical racism here in Canada. Anywho, Blackstock, a member of the Gitskin First Nation and a doctor of social work, has championed the rights of Indigenous kids for decades. She serves as Executive Director of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society, whose litigation against Canada has secured hundreds of thousands of services for First Nations youth. Its landmark victory at the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal in 2016 ordered the federal government to immediately end discriminatory practices, recognizes some 165,000 First Nations children right to access federal support on par with non-Indigenous peers and compensate children shortchanged by a two-tier system. Um, so when they say two-tier system, they're talking about the provincial and federal governments. The feds are now required to fully live up to the child first Jordan's principle, named in memory of Jordan River Anderson, a boy from Norway House Cree Nation in Manitoba who died at the age of five after spending years in hospital waiting for Manitoba and Canada to stop arguing over who should pay for his at-home care. Yet the system remains insert. Yet the system remains inert and governs recalcitrant. <laughs> oh my gosh. I swear I know how to read. Okay. Recalcitrant. I hope you guys know what I'm saying because I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> I swear I'm smart. <laughs> um, Blackstock and her colleagues have had to rely on legal non-compliance motions to force change. Each motion brings in a new wave of lit litigation. So what was being said there was that um, there was a time not too long ago where Indigenous children that needed access to health care uh, or just regular services, um, it would often be a battle between the provincial and the federal level of government. No, you take care of them. No, you take care of it. Oh, no, you take the bill. No, you. And what happened to young Jordan here was he passed away because of the lack of services available to him. Um, while the provincial and federal government argued over who has 
proper responsibility of flipping the bill. And this isn't something new again. But with the passing of young Jordan, uh, Jordan's principle came out of that legally recognizing that it is the responsible responsibility of the federal government to take care of indigenous first nations children and the services that they need that there should be no more bickering and no more children dying because no one wants to take responsibility for them where non-indigenous children this is not happening to them so we see discrimination already towards our children at such a young age and Jordan was a very sick little boy, so this shouldn't have happened, yet it did. But I'm grateful, even with his passing, that change could come of it. Unfortunately, as the government does, they say, yeah, yeah, we'll do it, we'll do it. But then they'll come in with their little uh, loopholes and lit- litigations and this and that. So that's what Cindy's been fighting for, to continue make sure to keep the government accountable to their duty to First Nations children, to help heal our children, and to help provide proper services for these children so that they don't have a childhood they need to heal from, like she said, and that our non-Indigenous children don't have to grow up with this guilt that I got this, but the Indigenous children didn't get that because I'm this color and they're that color. Although today's federal liberals are big on symbolism, their actions don't live up to the rhetoric on reconciliation, says Blackstock, who is also a professor of social work at McGill University. The pandemic has shown that the vast spending can quickly be mobilized on patterns of priority. And before that, the dedication to negotiating a trade agreement with the United States showed the government could rise to complex challenges. So there is no excuse, she argues, for indigenous communities to languish without clean water. And that's another issue. Many indigenous communities do not have access to clean water. And we think Canada's a first world country, yet there's communities that don't have clean drinking water, uh, let alone for children to go without basic services that can set them up for a healthy life. Blackstock is highly credentialed as consultant for the United Nations, has won countless accolades for her work, awards honorary degrees from universities across the country, and membership in the Order of Canada. But she has never lost sight of the children, the ones who have flooded courtrooms and glitter on their poster board. She has kept learning from them. We've really been mentored by the children to center what we do on the basis of love, Blackstock says. Some people might find love and litigation are in two different camps, but I don't. I think that's something, sometimes you have to use litigation to bring countries closer to living the value that they are, that they espouse. And that is actually a loving action for all humanity. So props to Dr. Blackstock for the work she does as that is one of our core teachings that our children are our most valuable resource. They are so vital, they are so important, they are the future. So thank you, Ms. Blackstock, for all the work you continue to do in regards to helping our children strive. I almost forgot, I wanted to list off some of the awards Ms. Blackstock, or Dr. Blackstock, has received throughout her lifetime of 
amazing work. She has received over 50 awards, including the Atkinson Charitable Foundation's Economic Justice Fellowship in 2009. Ooh, that was a mouthful. National Aboriginal Achievement Award in 2011. Amnesty International Persian <laughs> Person of Conscious Award 2017 and the Janice Korzak Medal for Children's Rights Advocacy. She has also received 20 honorary doctor degrees, including Doctor of Inu Kist- uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. uh Let's just say Blue Quills out in St. Paul. Blue Quills First Nations University 2016. Asinamekweo passing knowledge on from Blue Quills University in 2016. And an honorary doctorate from Osgood Law School in 2017. 17, not 70. How far in the future am I living? Okay, so we'll take a quick break and we are going to continue on profiling those awesome, amazing ladies in our communities who are making change and breaking glass ceilings. The Indigenous Connection Show. Hey guys, welcome to the, welcome back to the Indigenous Connections radio show. We're already halfway through our episode and oh my gosh, I don't think I've ever been so tongue-tied in one episode before. <laughs> but I hope you're laughing with me. I'm not getting you too frustrated. I'm trying here. I really am. <laughs> um, so we are going to continue on with our Okamawa Square series and our Matriarchs Rising. And this next profile that I'm doing is not just on one single woman, but on four women that have made such a huge impact and revolutionized the grassroots movement here in Canada. Um, so we are talking about the idle norm, <laughs> the idle no more movement. Um, so wow, when we think of idle no more, that seems such like a lifetime ago. Anywho, I Don't Know More was formed in November 2012 by four women from Saskatchewan, Jessica Gordon, Sylvia McAdam, Sheila McLean, and Nina Wilson. An exchange of emails between the four women regarding Bill C-45 led to the establishment of a Facebook page, which they named I Don't Know More. The name quickly caught on and soon represented a widespread movement to both safeguard the environment and respect indigenous sovereignty. Uh, At the heart of Idle No More was opposition to Bill C-45, which was introduced by Stephen Harper's conservative government in October of 2012. At over 400 pages, the Jobs and Growth Act affected over 60 acts, including the Indian Act, which I think we're going to have an episode on, the Navigable Waters Protection Act, Act, (laughs) change to the Navigation Protection Act, and the Environment Assessment Act. I don't know more activists argued that the changes made it easier for the government and big business to push through projects, example pipelines, without strict environment assessments, while simultaneously diminishing the rights and authorities of First Nations. The four founders of I don't know more began by posting their concerns about Bill C-45 on Facebook. Soon, however, the movement took to the streets and to the malls. In addition to teach-ins and rally, rallies, a number of flash mobs participated in round dances 
in malls across the country, particularly during the Christmas shopping season. For example, on December 2012, a flash mob performed a round dance at the Cornwall Center in Regina. The following day, a similar dance took place at West Edmonton Mall. And what they mean by similar dance is that they like had like hundreds of power dancers come dance through the halls of West Edmonton Mall. It was pretty amazing. Like, they literally had hundreds of people dressed up in their outfits, dancing powwow in the halls of West Edmonton Mall. I guess you could, I'm sure you could Google pictures. It was crazy. Okay, in January 2013, six youth and a guy left the James Bay Cree community of Wap, Wapamagotse, Quebec. I'm sorry, I apologize. I probably butchered that word. To begin the journey of Nishiyu, a 1,600-kilometer trek to Ottawa in support of Idol No More. By the time they arrived on t- March 25, 2013, the group had swelled to around 400. So they went from six youth to 400 people through their journeys that joined them. And they were met by thousands of supporters at Parliament Hill. I don't know more protesters also organized National Days of Action and some activists constructed blockades although at least one of the co-founders expressed concern that many that any aggressive action would detract from the peaceful nature of the message of the movement the impact of idle no more the idle no more movement attracted supporters from indigenous and non-indigenous communities in canada and internationally with rallies and round dances held not only in Canada, but also in the United States and overseas. According to the Idle No More website, around 50 events took place on January 28, 2013. The Idle No More World Day of Action, including 25 in Canada and 20 in the United States, as well as rallies in London, Paris, and Greenland. Media coverage focused on the attention of the public on Bill C-45 and on indigenous rights and issues more generally and more. And many commenters suggested that this publicity put significant pressure on the government, leading to a meeting on January 11, 2013, between the Prime Minister Stephen Harper and a delegation of the Assembly of First Nations, including the national chief at the time, Sean Atlio. Although media coverage of the movement declined after January 2013, meetings between the prime minister and delegates from the Assembly of First Nations, Idle No More has continued to advocate for change. In March 2013, Idle No More formed an alliance with Defenders of the Land, a network of activists that have been involved in indigenous land rights since 2008. As part of this alliance, Idle No More agreed to support nonviolent direct action, example, blockades. The two two organizations issued a joint declaration that called on the federal, provincial, and territorial governments to do the following. One, repeal provisions of the Job and Growth Act 2012, Bill C-45, that infringed on indigenous and treaty rights and environmental protections. Two, improve and deepen democracy by implementing 
proportional representation and ensuring consultation on legislating regarding collective rights and environmental protections. Three, fully implementing UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, including the right of Indigenous people to reject development on their territory. Four, end the government policy of extinguishing Aboriginal title instead affirming Aboriginal title and rights per Section 35 of the Constitution and as recommended by the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People. Five, honour historic treaties. Six, hold a national inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women. Idle No More continues to support environmental protests and Indigenous rights. In early 2019, for example, the movement called on Indigenous people and Canadians of consciousness to support the Gitmatin and the Unistotin in their opposition to the Trans-Canada Coastal Gas Link Pipeline Project. So personally, I think I don't know more will always have a little special place in my heart. Um, I remember when I was living in Saskatoon, they, the... I don't know more. The ladies were based in a little community co-op building on uh, 20th Street, which is the hood of Saskatoon. But it's called Station 20. So whenever my friends would come visit me from out of town, like for a powwow or something, I'd take them down 20th Street and be like, yo, that's the birthplace of I don't know more. And I would just kind of brag it up. <laughs> um, oh, man, those I don't know more days were hype. I remember this was like probably the first protest I attended and I guess it kind of really sparked that for me uh I remember we were uh flash mobbing large community centers and creating blockades at intersections and looking back I don't think I've ever had so many people give me the middle finger all at once before (laughs) but that's part of the fun I guess um I'm glad I can look back at all of this and laugh now um because it was kind of scary when people were so angry at us when we're just trying to protect the water and you know and protect our rights as indigenous people to not allow the government to just step over us like that um so this movement was what really gave birth to the next generation of land and water protectors um which we're gonna profile some in future episodes. And this movement really laid the foundation in other, uh, for other grassroots movements to follow, especially in the social media age. So when we were organizing those flash mobs, I remember we'd literally make a post a couple hours and be like, yo, be here. You. And we would have like hundreds of people all grouped up, ready to round dance and make a scene at the malls, a peaceful scene, I should mention. We are very peaceful about it. And we're just trying to bring attention to the issue and stand our ground and let Canada, the Canadian government know that they can't walk all over us anymore, that we have a voice and we need to be consented when making such dire decisions about the environment which impacts not only indigenous people but all people as we are all um dependent on this earth for clean water and good food to eat if we take either of those out of the equation for us as humans we're done we're done right 
Um, but yeah, good times, good times. <laughs> and to continue on with our last profile for this episode, as we're getting close to that time, is Joyce Echikwan. Um And with her, we're kind of leading from the I don't know more movement of how they utilize social media to make a movement to spark a change in our society. Uh, we also have to look at to, at the actions of Joyce Echequan in her final days of how she had brought a very important subject to the light for the rest of society to see. So uh, Joyce's story is unfortunately not a very happy one, but her bravery to record the abuse that she experienced and post it to social media, be, social media before her death has been began a real conversation about systematic racism in the healthcare system. And hopefully, hopefully, this will continue to lead to change. So you may have heard Joyce's story on mainstream news outlets. Um, so Joyce was a 37-year-old Atikamu woman who died September 28, 2020 in the St. Charles Boumeray, Quebec Hospital. Uh, I apologize for that pronunciation. I know a lot of our listeners are very are bilingual, and I'm sorry I have a really bad accent. Um, be, but serious here. Before her death, she recorded a Facebook Live video that showed her screaming in distress and healthcare workers abusing her. So she was admitted to the hospital on September 26th with stomach pains. This was two days before her passing. She was restrained to the bed, given morphine on September 28th, despite her concerns that she would have an adverse reaction to it. As she had stated, she is allergic to morphine. So um, Joyce is not a fluent French speaker, but being located in Quebec, what she would often do was she would live stream the nurses talking to her sister-in-law, who is a French speaker, and she would translate for her. And during one of these live streams, at least two hospital employees are heard insulting her in French. Uh, when Joyce was moaning in pain, an employee asked her if she is done acting stupid. Another employee told Joyce that she made some bad choices and asked what her children would be thinking if they saw her, where she quietly responded with, that's why I came here. So Joyce is actually was actually the mother of seven children. Uh, Joyce was also told that she is only good for sex. The employees were the ones paying for this and that she was stupid as hell. Joyce died later that day, according to her family, like I said, she was allergic to morphine. One employee, a nurse, was dismissed from the hospital September 29, the next day. A second employee, an orderly, was dismissed on October 1st. So uh, following Joyce's death, they are in now in court for her untimely passing. And that's of May 29, 2021. And the coroner had... So far heard from patients who said Joyce was mistreated in the hours before the video was posted. Um, staff who said the nursing candidate who treated her was not provided adequate support and an expert witness who said her death could have been prevented. Uh, 
Joyce's family lawyer said Thursday outside the courthouse, it's clear she was not properly monitored because she did not receive the surveillance that she should have received at the time, and that is what led to her death. The inquest, which began May 13, 2021, is exploring not only her death, but also how Indigenous people are treated within the Quebec healthcare system generally, and I think that should be expanded to all of Canada. The remainder will focus on recommendation. Constant Awashish, the Grand Chief of the Akamao Nation, said it Friday appears clear that Joyce was treated differently because she was Indigenous and that changes are needed within the health system. We need a lot more education, he said. This week, other troubling cases have come to life. A man from Kaniste, a Mohawk community west of Montreal, filed a human rights complaint against another hospital for which he was allegedly discharged wearing barely any clothes. And in Saguni, sorry, a healthcare worker was suspended for aggression towards an indigenous patient. Edith Cloutier, executive director of the Valdor, Valdor Native Friendship Center, a nonprofit community organization, sees a positive in these cases despite the stories being difficult to hear. Even in the context of the pandemic, people are standing up for their rights more and more, she said. And we saw with Joyce, even on her deathbed, she was standing up for her rights in the way she did it. Mistreatment of Indigenous people within Quebec's, Canada's, healthcare system has been well documented. The Vines Commission, a 2019 provincial inquiry, found the healthcare system is problematic on many levels. In particular, the report highlighted the cultural barriers facing Indigenous people. In light of this testimony from many citizen witnesses, it is clear that prejudice towards Indigenous people remains widespread at the interaction between caregivers and patients, wrote retired Justice Jacques Vines. Cloutier said the inquiry into Joyce's death is laying bare of those some same problems, but through her life as an Indigenous woman. What more can we say? There's inquiries and inquiries. At the news conference, Friday after the court, Quebec Health Minister Christian Dubé and Ian Lafrentier, sorry, the Indigenous Affairs Minister, didn't want to comment on the specifics of the inquiry, saying it was ongoing. Dubé said that Joyce's death has deeply shaken us all. Both, but both ministers re- reiterated their commitment to improving the treatment of Indigenous people and announced the province is spending $27 million to help Indigenous communities set up special clinics for medical and social services. The province has also previously committed to diversity training in the wake of Joyce's death. Of the new funding, $12 million will go to a clinic run through Cloutier's Native Friendship Centre in Val d'Or. The Min- Minoway Clinic, which partners with the Regional Health Board, has offered frontline health services for a decade. It incorporates traditional values, medicine, and culture when it treats patients. Um, So when someone is poisoned, let's say a snake bite, you got to suck the poison out. you got to bring that poison to the surface. For in order for it to heal. And that's what I see with Joyce's story, that, yes, it was a very tragic ending, but the bravery she showed 
by posting her final moments on social media and the treatment she received is starting to bring that poison to the surface and making conversations happen that often wouldn't happen as they were often dismissed and uh, oh, how it's my word against their word. Now we have the video evidence showing that there is systematical racism happening in our own communities. Um, so that is why I wanted to profile Joyce in this episode as she is an activist in her own right. And number uh, McLean's magazine honored Joyce's memory by making her posting her as number three on their power list of change makers in uh, Canada for 2021. And I know personally that many Indigenous people fear going to the doctors and asking for help because of the racism that they will endure, the indignities that they face, the um, often the judgments and the down calling, like, is this, um, and not believing them. So many people have steered away from asking for help just because of that systematical racism where something that could have been easily healed festered into something very horrific. And many people have met their ends because they are so scared to go to the doctors and ask for help because of this reality. So... We're going to call it a day. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Okamawa Squirrel Sears. I have no idea what episode we're on, and I have no idea how long this is going to go for. <laughs> we're just going to ride it out together. And the really neat thing is every time I profile one lady individual, I'm reminded of three other change makers out there. And I, I just, I just want to include them all. Because <laughs> like I said, we spent so much time focusing on the hardships, the tragedies, the ongoing epidemic of our women going missing and turning up murdered, that we cannot forget to profile the positive of our nation, of our people. We are not just a tragedy. We are resilient and we are on the rise. So thank you for joining me once again for this episode of the Indigenous Connections radio show. And we will continue on profiling some more amazing matriarchs rising on our next episode. Take care of yourself and have a great week. And that's the Indigenous Connections show with Randy Lynn. I like to give credit to A Tribe Called Red for their track sisters that we used in our intro.